Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of China Inc. by Bamboo Works, where we discuss the latest business and financial news from China and what it all means. I'm Doug Young, Bamboo Works Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined today by Rene Vangusti, one of our founding partners, who's also a longtime China watcher and former investment banker. Today, we'll look at a big advance for the yuan in China's drive to make its currency a global alternative to the U.S. dollar. And we'll also look at a great made-in-China yarn involving a company that created a new class of shares for its stock to help its founder maintain his voting power after he lost most of his shares in a margin call. Uh, we'll start with the yuan, which made headlines last month when it was used to settle a large deal for natural gas purchased from France's Total Energies by a Chinese buyer. The deal was quite global, involving 600,000 tons of the fuel that were extracted in the United Arab Emirates and then shipped to China. So, Renee, can you take us through, uh, since this is a slightly technical topic, uh, take us through what has actually just happened here? And, and you know, can you give us a, your spin on how significant it is? Well, it's, it's technical and and. Even more importantly, I think it's geopolitical. <laughs> yes, I think so. This is part of the overall effort of uh, China to build what I call a, a counterweight to the Western world, dominated, of course, by China. This focus on replacing the dollar is uh, the ultimate global reserve currency is, is nothing new. Europe has tried in the past. More recently, Russia, uh, as a result of the sanctions imposed on uh, Russia because of Ukraine, uh, tried to force European companies, primarily because they were the major buyers, to pay for everything in the Russian currency, the ruble. And I would suspect that eventually, at some point in time, as India becomes a much more important economic power. They may actually want to um, try and um, and and get uh, part of uh, global trade to be done in in rupees. Uh, nothing new here. But the more important issue is, you know, you um, you sell goods to China and you get um, yuan, and then what do you do with that? The uh, yuan is not convertible freely convertible at least. So, you know, only a few things can happen. One, you get a special approval from basically the Chinese government to convert those yuan back into a currency that is the currency that you operate under as a foreign company. Or two, you have a need for yuan, presumably in a substantial amount, for some of your investments in China, and it's kind of like you get it, you keep it there, you use it for something else uh, or for whatever uh, purpose uh, within the uh, Chinese environment. This may work pretty well if you want in terms of when, when you're dealing government to government or government entities to government entities. And I'm thinking here, for instance, about the deal with Saudi Arabia. And uh, which, on one hand, may get paid by China in yuan, and then uh, you know has the need to come up with whatever billions, ten, tens of billions of yuan to invest in those two projects in China. I think it can work well at that level. It can work with you know on a case by case basis with some companies, 
depending on their needs for yuan at the end of the day. But it's hard to see how this could play on a much broader scale with foreign companies if you don't have convertibility of the yuan into other currencies, or at least free convertibility. What do you do at the end of the day? You get yuan, and you know we all know that at least for now and probably for some time to come, very difficult to get your money out of China. Right. I mean, that's always been the big argument. Um, take us a, a little broader, because you mentioned, I mean, the ruble we can sort of understand, but the EU's tried to make the euro an alternative to the US dollar for a long time now, and, and they haven't gotten very far either. And what are the obstacles here? And, and I guess, is there any chance, I guess you've already said convertibility is a big issue. Uh, you know, if the euro can't succeed, what are the chances for the yuan? Well, I mean, you look at it again from a geopolitical standpoint, and uh, you could see, you know, China force the global south, as uh, the expression goes, to use the yuan when they do business with China, when they sell goods to China, when they trade with China, because they obviously would have a lot more leverage with countries, say, in Africa or in South America and so on, especially countries to which, you know, they lend billions and tens of billions of dollars for projects and so on. Mm. But those countries, those companies may feel they don't have a choice. But once again, I think it, it's very difficult to start thinking about at the level of specific companies and specific trade deals, unless you, you know, unless you have one of two things. One, you have needs, substantial needs in nuance for investment in China or whatever, at a time where, let's not forget, a number of foreign companies are shrinking their manufacturing or their operation or their investment footprint in China, uh, or you have convertibility, which is not likely to happen very quickly. Mm -hmm. It is difficult to replace the dollar because the dollar plays such an important role in trade and there is so much liquidity in dollar, not just in the U.S., but also outside of the U.S. It's a bit like stocks. The greater liquidity you have and the easier it is for everybody to trade. The um, euro, I think, never really reached that kind of level that would have made it very easy hmm. to, um, to take away part of the um, share of the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. Sounds like uh, trumpeting of this particular deal maybe is a lot more hype than, than anything else. Well, there's going to be trumpeting inevitably. Mm. And there will probably more, be a few more deals like these because of, you know, what is going on in the world today from a geopolitical standpoint. So right. expect that there will be some more deals and there will be even more noise about it. Yes, I'm sure China will be uh, first to publicize. Right. Okay. Well, next, let's uh, move on to, uh, we're going to feature one of our bamboo works, Made in China Yarns of the Week. Uh, and this one, like I said at the top, uh, involved a data center operator called VNet. Seems the company's chairman and founder pledged his 20% voting stake in the company as collateral for a $50 million loan he took out. Then things went south when VNet's stock fell, triggering a margin call that led the lender to sell the shares after the chairman couldn't repay the loan or didn't repay the loan. 
So what does the chairman do? Uh, turns out he had the company's board create a new class of shares exclusively for him, each with super voting rights, and then purchased enough of those to regain his 20% voting stake at a substantially lower cost. So as I like to say, this is China. Uh, as someone who's encountered a lot of these Chinese companies over the years, would you say this kind of behavior is, is common or is it relatively rare or, or somewhere in between? This is China to you. Um, <laughs> let's put things in perspective a little bit. There, there, there are different pieces to this puzzle here. One, obviously, is what you would call super voting rights. And, uh, you know, it, it, that exists not just in China. It exists in, in many different markets. Obviously, one of the most visible use of super voting rights, if you look back 20 years, was in Silicon Valley. And uh, where founders got 10 to 1 or 20 to 1, the voting rights. Um, so that's nothing new. Um, the big difference, you could say, is that when those um, tech companies went to markets, and they did IPOs, investors knew that companies had those structures that protected the interests of the founders, people like Mark Zuckerberg at uh, Facebook, now Meta and so on, mm. Google guys and everything. So it was kind of like buyer beware. A lot of investors decided that um, you know they shouldn't pay attention to that because those guys were super good and they were going to create tremendous shareholder value. The big difference with what we're seeing here is that this is not at the time of the IPO. So the company has its shareholders and then all of a sudden uh, somebody springs the surprise on the existing shareholders and say, well, look, you guys thought that we were all equal here. Well, I have news for you. We are not. <laughs> Tough lie. Right. The other piece of the puzzle is this use of shares owned by founders, typically chairman, CEOs of companies to borrow money, to pledge them to borrow money from banks to fund other ventures. And uh, once again, it's not unique to China, but if I look back 20 years of working with Chinese companies, including quite a number of smaller Chinese companies, that is not unusual. And um, Chinese entrepreneurs have a demonstrated ability to get into multiple businesses at the same time that are not necessarily actually related to each other. You know, I've seen that many times. The way that they fund some of the new ventures is was effectively by, you know, pledging shares that they owned in the listed entity to borrow money from banks and uh, and invest in, in those other ventures. And in some cases, that has led to actual bankruptcies for the listed entities. And I've seen a few of those over the years. Mm. So, you know, being there, I've seen that as far as I'm concerned, not a big surprise that this happens. It is uh, part of the course in a lot of aspects. This is China. Well, I mean, uh, is there anything that, these minority investors can do to protect themselves when, when something like this happens? Or is this sure. really just more a case of let the buyer beware, you know, uh, even though you can't, you can't know that it'll happen, but that maybe it could happen? Or how would you advise, you know, people who might want to buy these stocks? Vote with your feet. 
<laughs> uh, vote with your feet. But the by the time something like this happens, the stock's probably yeah. already you know lost half its value or something like that. That is the risk. And obviously, I don't think that any of these moves are actually telegraphed in advance. So as as a minority shareholder, you pretty much end up every time, you know, being confronted with the reality. And if you don't like it, well, you can hang around <laughs> and hope for better days, which are unlikely to happen, or, or you get out. Mm -hmm. As a minority shareholder in a Chinese company, in your typical Chinese company, and I would say 99%, you basically forget that there is a board of directors. Boards of directors in China are never going to go against a Chinese chairman, mm -hmm. major owner, founder, with all this uh, mystique about the founder and all of that, and the all, uh, all power to the chief. You know, chairmen are extremely powerful, as we all know. They are not to be questioned, challenged, and uh, and typically, you know, they put um, people on their boards that they know will not go against them. Mm -hmm. I think I saw only once in my 20 years a director of a Chinese company publicly listed outside China going against the board. And that director was actually a Westerner. I'm sorry, I saw that twice. It was actually a Westerner. And there were Westerners in the second case as well. But, you know, they were the exception on the board. So that never really amounted to anything meaningful in terms of protecting third-party shareholders. Okay. I guess the maybe the moral is do your research on the chairman or the founder and don't worry too much about anybody else. Well, yes, if you can, and uh, that is also not necessarily very easy. And then, uh, then you know, people change over time. I mean, you look at VNet, first of all, they've been in business for a long, long time. They've been listed in the U.S. definitely more than 10 years, maybe 12, 15 years. That's a long period of time for, you know, people, chairman in particular, to possibly change the way that they manage the business, the way they make decisions, uh, where their interest lies at the end of the day, mm. especially if, you know, the business is not doing as well uh, as it used to and so on. You know, you're dealing with human beings and then you're dealing with human beings which have practically, you know, full control of everything that happens in the corporation. Right, right. Okay. All right. Well, anyhow, good food for thought. Hopefully uh, our listeners will learn something from that. Thanks, everybody, for listening again this week. Before we go, I'd like to ask all of you uh, listeners out there to recommend us to your friends if you like what you're hearing. And also, please give us a rating on the platform that you listen to us. Get the word out. Thanks, everybody, for listening again uh, this week. Join us next week for another edition of China Inc., when we'll look once more at the latest trending Chinese topics. Hope to see you then. Goodbye for now. Thank you all.